Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks on the Gospel of John. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we are studying Lesson 6, which looks at the latter half of John chapter 4, where Jesus teaches us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But before we get started on our discussion, I just have a couple of announcements for you today. One is regarding giving. BSF is entirely funded by the love gifts of, of its members in order to make this freely available for everyone. If you are thinking about where to give your end of year giving for Thanksgiving Christmas, we hope that you will keep BSF in mind. While this study is entirely free, it does cost about $130 for each person every year to keep BSF operating. So if you might keep that in mind. Also, a second announcement is regarding BSF Kids and student versions available also, which meets on Tuesday nights. If you know of young people who would benefit from what you're learning, uh, but cater to their age level, of course, our local BSF teachers are inviting everyone who have kids or grandkids uh, for them to join them on the online BSF Zoom program. We have uh, four age-appropriate uh, groups meeting every week from elementary to high school. And so if you have any questions about this, uh, please let us know by emailing us at BibleStudyNSF at gmail.com so we can get you plugged in. All right, going back now to the study. So today we're looking at the question uh, from John chapter 4, which essentially gets to the uh, question of what can't you live without? Okay, we're going to see how that relates shortly. But have you had times when you've declared, you've said under your breath maybe that you couldn't live without something? I've heard people say that they can't live without chocolate, okay? <laughs> without their spouse or without their lover, uh, that they couldn't live without their pet or their family, or their fancy house or car or some other silly possession, or even drugs. Um, people think that they can't live without a lot of things. But increasingly so, people are becoming more and more convinced that they can live without God. So when is the last time you heard someone say, I can't live without God in my life. I can't live without Jesus at the seat of my heart. Jesus at the center of my heart and having complete authority over my emotions, feelings, my desires, my wants. As the world convinces us with a barrage of marketing messages that we can't live without this or that product or some possession, some holiday, we have become conditioned to become believers and apostles of the productions of our own hands than on the Almighty God who has made us for himself. So right as the Israelites were entering the promised land, God spoke to them about this problem that we all have throughout time. The concern that God had that the Israelites would become proud by the amount of prosperity they were about to experience in the promised land. So he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting with verse 1, and it's, I'm going to read through the entire chapter, but I hope that you'll keep in mind how relevant this is as in John, um, Jesus is talking about food and water that gives life. He'll bring it into context because it's not the first time. Jesus is actually using words from scripture. Uh prophesied by uh, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. So as I read this chapter, I'm going to read the entire thing. Uh, listen carefully to how this uh, overlaps with everything Jesus is talking about to a new generation of people who are trying to make sense of God's word. You must carefully follow every commandment I am giving you today so that you may live and multiply and enter and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers Remember that these 40 years the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, and in your hunger he gave you manna to eat, 
which neither you nor your fathers had known, so that you might understand that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. So you so know in your heart that just as man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Therefore, you should keep the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and fearing him. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and fountains and springs that flow through the valleys and hills. A land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land where rocks are iron and whose hills are ready to be mined for copper. When you eat and are satisfied, you are to bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful not to forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments and ordinances and statutes, which I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses in which to dwell, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the vast and terrifying wilderness with its venomous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty and waterless land. He brought you water from the rock of Flint. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers had not known, in order to humble you and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You might say in your heart, The power and strength of my hands have made this wealth for me. But remember that this is the Lord your God who gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant. So this is the context by which we come to the themes and lessons in John chapter 4. Jesus speaks of the spring of water that quenches a spiritual thirst forever. He speaks of having eaten food that was to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. So Jesus here not only receives the Father's work, but he acts on and does them to completion in order that the amazing abounding work of God may be executed and expressed powerfully into the world. And that's what we mean by to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. When God speaks to us with his word, it doesn't just stay latent in our brains or asleep in our minds. It unleashes, God's word unleashes in a practical way out in the world, unleashes a gushing spring of life into the people and the world around us. It makes uh, sustenance to fall from the skies so that people find a spiritual source of nourishment that feeds their soul. Um, it's kind of like when I tell young people, uh, you know, we are living currently right now, and, and we've always had, but more so in our popular culture, uh, zombie land of deadened souls. And they like that because uh, there's so many movies appealing to young people with zombies. And you know what zombies are? You know, zombies is strangely a popular image in our culture these days in movies and video games. And uh, but I don't think people realize how accurately zombies work. The whole kind of symbolism of zombies work as symbols of people whose souls are dried up and st starving of spiritual food. Because zombies, you know, they've lost all their sense of humanity and they become this shell of a thing, this rapacious monster of a thing that seeks to just constantly consume especially consume off the lives of other people. They look for other people to feed a dark void and emptiness in their lives, one after another, but are forever never satisfied. All these demented monsters um, of our fears are like that, you know, whether you're thinking of vampires or mummies or Frankensteins, they all represent our deadened souls. Uh, people were, were kind of living into the shell of their bodies and their uh, baser instincts and, and appetites. 
as demented souls lacking the true life that we so desperately need and we so often forget, don't know how to identify the true source of life for. You know, all these movies, there's there's really no hope for zombies. Once you become a zombie, I mean, that's it. It's too late. Um, yeah, they all represent us uh, in our kind of desperate need for love, for acceptance, for adulation and fans, for recognition of our self-worth and value, for meaning and purpose. You know, zombies keep on poaching on others to get these things. You know, Frankenstein, another monster, is particularly interesting because uh, Frankenstein symbolizes humanity uh, at its best in terms of our ability to engineer and design and create uh, life by our own kind of genius, by our own ingenuity through science and knowledge and not after God. But if you remember the scene from popular culture, there's the ambitious scientist who gets all the body parts together to make up Frankenstein. And there's these kind of sizzling electricity running up and down the ceiling and the walls. And he declares finally with triumphant exclamation, he is alive. But the rest of the story tells us how wrong he was. Life is more than the sum of our desires. Life is more than the sum of our appetites of this flesh. There's a soul. There's a spirit in us. That's what gives us life. It is to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's look uh, here for a moment at the chapter divisions as we, as we go deeper into the study for this week. The main truth this week is God gives us grace to see the eternal beyond the temporal. There are two main divisions to this uh, latter half of chapter 4. The first division uh, is called readiness of the harvest. And it's split up into three parts. Our spiritual nourishment, verses 31-34. Our spiritual opportunities, verses 35-38. to 38, And our spiritual harvest. So there's a spiritual nourishment that we receive when we live into and following God's will and God's word. It nourishes and strengthens us. Uh, not just to hear it and to understand it, but to act on it. Uh, acting into the opportunities that God presents, which results in a spiritual harvest. And the principle we come to learn is that God's grace accomplishes the fullness of spiritual investments. And again, spiritual investments, not necessarily that we uh, are doing, but many others might be doing prior to our even meeting uh, people who may have heard of Jesus or have gotten different parts and pieces of the gospel message, and they're digesting and they're processing and they're trying and wrestling with the questions. Um, yeah. The Holy Spirit will piece all of that together and finally just bring them to a knowledge and understanding of what they need to know. Um, part two is growing spiritual faith. And that's a second story involving a royal official with a sick, a fatally sick son. And there are three subdivisions to this. The first one being a physical crisis exceeding our control. The second is a spiritual faith exceeding what we're used to. That's 48 to 50. And then see a spiritual change exceeding what we expect exceeding what we expected and the principle here from this story that we gain is that god's grace sees the greater spiritual need we look at the things that are inconvenient or a crisis on the superficial level but god always sees much deeper and sees the core of the problem uh, which we um, don't like to deal with most times let's move to question 3a what food sustained and satisfied jesus here, um, Jesus was sustained by what he gave out than what he took in. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
when we are plugged into God's eternal purposes, our kind of internal antennas get rewired to a different frequency and we become tuned in to a higher calling and purpose for our daily schedules. Uh, whether that involves interaction with people or the whys and what's of each hour of each day, um, doing the will of him who sent me to finish his work becomes the main overriding agenda for my day, whether that be in my workplace, in my interactions with my family, with my spouse. So we go to this idea of food again. Food is something that gives us energy and nourishes us. It, it, it mobilizes us with the strength that we need. And Jesus says that doing the work of the Father has energized and nourished him in ways to take away his tiredness. Um, I was just in an older men's discussion group this morning, and it's comprised of men in their 50s or older. And as they're beginning to think about the last third of their life, how to live it well, um, a lot of these men who are highly trained, highly paid professional men were saying things like they didn't feel they've been really busy or active or productive with their careers. And, and it's been like that for their entire careers. There's a heavy sense of emptiness. None of it's satisfied. Um, even when they were younger and more energetic, their lives felt like um, it was constantly being drained. Their souls weren't living. Um, they felt deadened by moving from one thing to another. And they were always trying to find exciting adventures and experiences to uh, get them awake, to, uh, to get them to appreciate what life could hold. But they kept looking to fill that uh, need by doing more and more experiences and traveling and meeting interesting people. Jesus tells us something radically different from this. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have life to the full. I am come that they might have that life and that they might have life to the full. That's John 10.10. 10. There's a tendency for us to think that we are satisfied by what we consume, what we experience, the people, the circles that we hang out with. Somehow that these things will give us a sense of meaningfulness, give us the energy that we need to pick us up, give us a sense of fuller mission and, and energize our sense of what this life is about, the life that God's given me to live. Isaiah 55 talks about this, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation just to kind of pick it up a little bit in terms of um, using common language. Uh, just bear with me. You may not be familiar with the NLT version, but uh, it, it's a little bit more um, colloquial. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you uh, satisfaction? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me. You will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. See how I used him to display my power among the peoples and made him a leader among the nations. You also will command nations you do not know, and peoples unknown to you will come running to obey, because I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has made you glorious. Seek the Lord while you can find Him. Call on Him now while He is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord, that He may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for He will forgive generously. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and snow comes down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. And now here's the, here's the interesting thing. It gives you... Um, 
the results of what happens when God's Word becomes glorified in your life. That's verse 12. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtle trees will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of His power and love. That's amazing to me. I don't know about you, just hearing that and thinking about the thorns and the nettles, the barriers, the things that disintegrate and denigrate humanity right now, whether it's mental illness and homelessness and depression and and where thorns and thistles create barriers to where they can approach God um, and for healing and for mercy and grace. And that we, as God's people, work into this so that the thorns are replaced by cypress trees, grow, and where nettles are cast down and replaced by myrtle trees that spring up um, and the land is healed and renewed. Do you hear in those words God's promise to make us a powerhouse for revival, restoration, and renewal in the lives of others that we can do in His name? This means that your life takes on a radically different approach to things, a new effect on the world that uh, He wants you to be. Not just someone who's moving through it, seeking his own you know, satisfaction, his own gratification for things, but everywhere you go, you're leaving an aroma of Christ behind you, an aroma, a, the scent of Christ so you might be asking, how do I go about drinking and eating God's word well enough to be glorious in the world, affected and changed by God's word to be this instrument of God's hands and feet? Well, it takes discipline and training, such as the BSF study that you're doing, maybe not too well, but developing an engagement with it that's intentional and not something that you're just clocking in hours by, but taking the study and the learning process seriously, that you're doing the questions and filling out those questions with some thought you know, heavy lifting is required for, for developing muscles. And, but we all try to get, you know, to God's will and God's greater purposes by taking shortcuts. And that definitely doesn't work. We all need to be more attentive to God's voice. And that takes time and that takes intentional effort. Training ourselves to be attentive can be more difficult than it sounds, of course. You know, a writer I'm reading says um, in his book, It is amazing how we take our schedules so seriously that we never wonder if God has anything for us to do. <laughs> I mean, it, it, we, our schedules are all booked up. <laughs> we don't have a space for God. Uh, that, so, such that, our, you know, at the end of the day, we never get a chance to ask, I wonder what God wants us to do in all of life. Has your schedule and your life agenda become so filled with your own ambitions and plans that it rarely, if ever, uh, has a foothold, a gain and room for considering what God's work might be and how it might fit into your life. If you feel this way, you, you're not alone. You know, please uh, don't feel like you know you're, I'm just point, pointing you out. But it still doesn't mean that we can stay with that if we are truly wanting to live for Christ. There's another writer I'm reading, enjoying uh, Robert Mulholland, who says that we come to the Bible with an informational mindset. You know, we read it like we're reading the newspaper, with a purely kind of functional uh, mindset for information, uh, for uh, ideas. To process um, when actually the Bible is trying to create a formational, a formational, not informational, a formational relationship with God. And that takes time. You know, relationship with people are hard. You know, it takes time. It's hard because it, it takes intentionality. It takes uh, space. It takes um, the, the time in which we get to know the person in a genuine, authentic encounter. And such is the encounter with God. You can't force it. You have to spend time in an intentional and genuine way. 
and it begins with a humility and submission in a posture to be open-hearted and open-minded to his truth, to understand kind of like how you would when you first met your spouse. What is it that that spouse enjoys and delights in? What music do they like? What kind of ice cream do they enjoy? You know, that kind of thing takes time in walking in step with that person and being willing to go to the venues and places that they enjoy, such as with God. You have to go to the places that God cares about, that he delights in, so that your heart starts to mold itself along his and that you start to delight in the things that he delights in and that you start hating those things that are denigrating and destructive, the things that he hates in sin. So go from the informational to the formational and take a learning approach to the Bible. Take a genuine kind of sitting down and not using the clock to punch in 15 minutes a day with devotions because that doesn't really work relationally. Have you found a 15-minute date night work with your spouse? It doesn't work that way. Uh, It shouldn't be like an empty chore. You don't take notes because you're forced to. You don't keep track of it because it's on your smartwatch. No, Uh, a relationship with God is vivacious. It's it's organic. Uh, It involves keeping notes because you found something amazing (laughs) from the discussion you had with God. Uh, He revealed to you something that you had never understood before, and you're discussing it with others on the same journey, and you have friends that you can discuss it with, you're excited to share things with, and have significant deep spiritual conversations with, and you love unpacking the things that he's telling you and speaking to your heart. And that's what authentic relationship is. Dallas Willard talked about uh, the process of spiritual formation being part, uh, partly engaging and partly abstaining. Now, we don't like the word abstinence or abstaining, but think of it this way. He says, abstaining means to put off because we get so encumbered by noise in our world. We live in a noisy world. It's probably the noisiest time in history for humanity ever. I mean, we're bombarded by noise, especially with the internet and with social media and the news, so that we don't have time to know how to spiritually create space for how God would speak to us because the noise of the world is so in just kind of it's nonstop and constant. And so he, he outlines these spiritual disciplines. He says, get away and disengage, put off to abstain. And that's what, you know, fasting, as I spoke about before, involves. It means practicing a time of solitude to think. It doesn't mean that you're sitting there with nothing to think about. Solitude means to create space for silence so that you can start to talk and speak and to understand as you read God's word, word by word, observing the key words, the special words, and thinking about what it all means and taking notes by it and mulling over it. And then silence. Okay, Silence is not monastic practice. It's, it's about trying to replace a lot of the crazy kind of reminders that go triggering, you know, these notifications in your brain, like on your phone, that keeps telling you, don't forget this, don't forget that. Practicing silence away from the demands of life and opening yourself up to what God might be asking and talking to you about the things that he loves and why he loves those things. And then you pondering why he would even love those things and why you should too. Fasting, frugality. Frugality means, you know, you don't just go off spending on the simplest impulse or trying to imitate others in the race for consumption. No, chastity, practicing self-control. Secrecy, that means you don't go off telling people things that you told them you were going to hold in confidence, that you hold back on the things by observing the dignity and the respect that others deserve. And that's chastity and secrecy. Protecting others by knowing how to keep other people's information confidential and sacrifice. Being willing to give above and beyond what you normally tend to do. And then watching, which means to be attentive, 
paying attention and then knowing how to serve others because you start to notice how someone might not be able to help themselves or that someone's having trouble with something. It only comes when you're a careful watcher. And then by when we put things off, we can start to put things on, which are the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit, as they might manifest themselves in the study, sitting and kind of being more deep in thought about what you're reading and processing that and taking time to process it throughout the day. I mean, wherever you might be. And then looking at other, other sources on the subject that you might want to dig more into. And then worship, authentic worship and celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, communion, and then practicing humility, which is submission. So that's what he advises. It's just one way of practicing the spiritual disciplines, uh, but you might have others. And sometimes these are called the rule of life practice. People call it the rule of life. What is your rule of life? What are the different kinds of rhythms of life that you can practice instead of, you know, waking up, going to the bathroom, getting a cup of coffee, opening up the newspaper? I mean, people have these worldly rhythms of life that charges them with the emotions of the world to be fired up about Ukraine, to be fired about, up about Israel and Gaza. And, and then we get so fired up with these issues, we have no place for understanding how God would have us think and move into these issues, large and then small at the micro level of our lives. Moving on to question 4a, in what ways were Jesus' disciples confused by his words? Well, just like what I was saying before, when we are th so busy having our own thoughts, we don't understand what Jesus is talking about. It's like, a, it's like as if he was speaking Chinese. Um, so the spiritual language can seem like that. It's the same that happened. I mean, the misunderstanding happened with a woman who was thinking that Jesus wanted to give her physical water or Nicodemus who thought that being born was uh, entering into the mother's womb again. I mean, this total missed understanding of what Jesus is driving at because they are so bombarded and in embedded within their world system of thought. They're not spiritually aware to understand the greater dimensions, the dimensions above the one plane dimension that they're living in because that's where above and beyond is where god's purposes and will are found they're not found in the things of this world i tell you the things of this world is working at its best to take us away from god's purposes and will and to distract us the best they can or the best that it can because if you're living purely in the physical dimension of things in the world you're going to be emotionally upset about not having food at the right time uh, disciples, you know, they came at lunchtime, they brought food, and they're upset that these other people are coming out of the town, and they get so swept up into the physical and worldly affairs, they miss out on something far greater spiritually that's taking place, far more uh, of import than they can imagine. When we are not in tune to the Spirit, we can let the body and its appetites dictate what we must be at any given point. When is the, have you had that experience when, you know, your expectations for what should be taking place right now uh, fulfilling my needs, my desires, my aims and goals right now override anything that God is trying to do such that later on you reflect on it and think, what did I just do? Where was my mind at that time? So it's at these critical moments when very important spiritual events and activities require our undivided spiritual intelligence. It's uh, another, there's IQ, there's EQ, now you have the SQ. Uh, this is the other SQ, spiritual intelligence, not social quotient. But yeah, we need greater spiritual intelligence to know and to understand how God is at work. So, you know, this kind of fasting, as we had spoken about before, is that fasting is to say no to the selfish kid inside all of us. <laughs> There's a selfish kid in there and you got to tell it no in order to say, I'm going to live and look into the greater dimensions of all that's happening and taking place, that God is at work and I want to be part 
of that work with him. I am his hands and feet. And I've got to get to the place where I say, not my will, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It's hard. Yes, it's hard. But you know, if you don't practice this in the small, tiny steps you make to progress, then the bad habits, the unreflected sense of entitlement, and the just plain selfishness will set in and take root and take control. That's what always happens if we don't work for the spiritual, the physical, and the material will always dominate and take over. So looking at uh, question B here, 4B, what are some works God gives believers to do today? When people start thinking about what God's will for them is, they expect God to send them some kind of airmail from the sky, some extraordinary prophetic word from someone to shake them into action, give them a brave, bold mission. It doesn't work like that. Have you ever found yourself waiting for God's direction and uh, not finding it? And you're wondering, how does this work, <laughs> finding God's will? What is this business about? Well, God's will doesn't come to you in your waiting. It comes to you in your acting. So what do I mean by this? It means that you got to look around your place of ministry at church or work or school or wherever you might be where God has placed you. And like someone who's starting a new business or entrepreneurship, um, entrepreneurial venture, you've got to try with something very, very small. And you can't get into the thinking, oh, this is below me. Oh, uh, stack the, the mess on that table. Oh, that's not my job. A servant of God looks and waits and looks and see attentively where he can fill in the gap. You've got to fill in the gap in the micro ways where the gaps are not being filled. And this is thinking about how God might do something about this for his church. Thinking about a vision for how it would be a blessing to others in the ministry and the work that God is doing in the world. You know, that takes imagination to create a vision. So when you're looking at some mess, you then think about, okay, how can I better this, make it better, make, improve it, and then constantly work to incrementally make additional improvements. So what you're doing is you're carving out a little corner of that great venture called the church or maybe the ministry that you see at work or somewhere that God has planted a seed and it might be something very menial, something even like dirty bathroom. Uh, and then you're thinking, you know, how can I create the most beautiful and edifying bathrooms the church world has ever seen? You know, that might sound ridiculous, but that's how it works. Nobody wants to touch dirty bathrooms. Nobody wants to touch dirty feet. But Jesus calls us to go wash feet. Or how to, how to make a welcome team at on Sunday mornings when people enter a sometimes... Uh, unfamiliar environment and they feel totally out of place like a fish out of water and you don't know you see it and you start to observe it and you wonder how can we make people who are not used to or have negative emotions and feelings about attending church feel especially welcomed and loved and felt like they have friends here as they enter into some form of worship they don't understand how can we make that place a safe and welcoming environment as soon as they step through into the foyer that's ministry. You've got to think of it in the micro ways because surely no one is not, God is definitely not going to give you a, a mission of big importance if you have not worked on the small stuff. And that's the small stuff is where we all, we all start. So if you want to know God's will, look for the small stuff. When you get started on the small project, you will find endless ways to show creativity, constant improvement, and leadership will grow. Your eyes, the way you look at the world is going to change. And it's going to spread and grow into other areas that you think you can improve. And then other people are going to follow you. They're going to ask you how they can help. And you're going to have teams to mobilize that you had never imagined that you'd be doing for the building up of the church and being the hands and feet of God. 
Let's move on to question 6a, which asks, what did Jesus mean when he spoke of the harvest in verse 35? Well, the harvest is very much about growing our spiritual muscles as much as it is to go out and do the work of God. There are many ways to plant and prepare people's hearts for greater understanding in the things of God. The ground of our lives have to be created uh, for searching for the higher purpose of God. It has to be tilled. It has to be uh, all the weeds and all the rocks have to be taken out. That's, you know, basic to gardening 101 or farming 101. The Holy Spirit wants to unplug and to weed out the garbage so that the good seed planted there can be to take root. You know, the Holy Spirit will bring all of that together. He's the one that gives the fruit. Depending on where we are, we may not even know where our own blind spots are, is the thing. They're, they're the rocks that get in the way. Scripture talks about bringing every mountain low and the valley high so that our blind spots don't get in the way of our clarity and seeing Jesus and his gospel for what it is. And this is why we have trouble with our faith and trust in God is because all these blind spots exist. And we have a responsibility for unweeding, de-rocking, and bring the mountains low and raising the valleys so that the way to the Lord can be open and uh, readily available for others to come and make their way to the Lord. Jesus is always looking for closure, as one brother said in our meetings. He said, Jesus is always looking for closure. He's the one that ultimately brings the closure for those who are finding him and living for him, like this woman and like the townspeople. And by the way, we're not the ones Winning souls. That term winning souls came out of the great uh, revival movements, the awakening movements in America. But, you know, um, the vast majority of the church doesn't talk like that. And the early church never talked about that. They talked about Peter, Paul and Apollos and others who had nurtured their spiritual development and their sanctification. But this idea that I win souls and somehow that I convince somebody to accept Jesus is really not biblical. It's actually the Holy Spirit who does the conversion. He's the one that brings people to Jesus. And we only pray that the Holy Spirit would work in the lives of people to save. And our job is to tell people about Jesus as boldly and as clearly as we possibly can, not only with words, you know, uh, if someone has said, if actions don't convince, then use words. Our responsibility is to share the word as clear and, and as uh, effectively as possible with words and our the living of our lives. But ultimately, it, it's the Holy Spirit who gives the new life. And also, God's timing is important, and it is not up to you to force it down someone's throat. Spiritual timing of the harvest is something that God offers. And various people work alongside the Holy Spirit to sow and plant seeds, but God gives the increase. The scripture clearly says that God gives the increase. And we pray for that increase, of course. And there, I believe that there are people who um, have a hard time with the gospel. And many of our children sometimes fall by the wayside. But we pray that God would protect and watch over the seeds that are planted into the lives of our loved ones. And in the meantime, the funny thing is something interesting happens to us as we're praying for those we love. So we desperately want them to come to know the Lord. We become more fervent prayer warriors and we become more ardent in learning more deeply into scripture so that we can give a well-reasoned response to the questions that are at hand. So yeah, it, it helps us to deepen our discussion, our conversation around the important things of God, important things of life. So the harvest looks um, not at the timing that we want. God gives time for these things to happen along his time. And there's a time for everything, he says, but that timing is not our own. If we let our worldly time to interrupt uh, the spiritual timing and opportunities, we may forfeit them altogether. So when you see Jesus at work harvesting, don't interrupt him by your sense of timing that it's lunchtime. That's when we need to step back, observe, pray with Jesus and align our priorities and desire with his. And my last uh, comment is about the final story of the uh, royal official whose son is taken ill. Um, 
I mentioned this before, but this is worth mentioning again, that sometimes God does his best work not by what he gives, but what he takes away. When we lose something is when a radical awakening and understanding takes shape, because we realize that sometimes these security blankets that we have wrapped around us is gone and we're left more vulnerable, and it reveals things in our hearts, in our lives that we hadn't noticed before. And if you've been in a vulnerable spot before, you become suddenly very humbled by your own fragility and mortality in ways that you hadn't been. So here's a royal official with a sick son. Imagine being among the elite crowd of rulers. You know, you're the top 1%, creme de la creme, secure on a perch so high you think life is good and safe and no one can take that away from you. And then your son becomes deathly ill and there's nothing that anyone can do to help. Except that you've heard in some passing something about a man named Jesus sent by God who could do miracles. So Jesus suddenly becomes the most important thing on this man's mental radar. He doesn't send emissaries. He goes directly, desperately himself, seeking an audience with Jesus, begging him to heal his son. As with all Jesus' encounters, Jesus knew this man before he came running and before he was even born. He knew his deeper need. So we come to Jesus sometimes thinking that we have one problem we wish he would fix. But he ends up revealing something much, much more deeper and larger that we need healing from that we ever thought about, we ever even, you know, even imagined. Have you had times you prayed over personal problems only to discover much later that the problem was far more spiritual in nature and significant than you originally thought? It was so significant, uh, it was it, it actually changed everything about your life. Well, Jesus forced this man to go back and face a bigger problem that he didn't even realize he needed to contend with, which was, did he believe in the promised word of God? And in the same way, we all, in some ways, confront this problem. In the same way, all we can do is to believe and trust him. And that is the first and probably the most important uh, practice in our spiritual walk with God. That's how relationship with God works for everyone, to trust. Whether you're rich or poor, whatever social, economic, or ethnic background you're from, but that trust can have profound changes that leads to a radically changed life for that person, for yourself, and for your entire family into becoming believers for Christ. So we see the worldly need we want to, you know, met now, but Jesus sees a need that is far more essential and fundamental to this man and to his entire family and even beyond, to his nation and to his circle of influence. People often meet and or come after Jesus in this way often to get their worldly needs met, but then the worldly needs become essentially an access point by which Jesus has them think about their most dire need, that life is fragile, brief, tenuous. They must seek God for the great gift of eternal life with him, the great beyond the ages to come, the kingdom of his life and of his son that he wants to give us, life that only he can give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your life. Thank you for your word and for coming into our lives when we didn't know how to even come to you and approach you. We didn't even know when we were with you what to ask for. But then, Lord, you knew our deepest needs. Thank you, Lord. You are a loving Father. You are a loving God and Savior. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.